Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll examine the health care provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act, which became law last month. The bill will allow Medicare to begin negotiating prices of certain prescription drugs. It puts a cap on out-of-pocket prescription drug expenses for Medicare beneficiaries, and extends for three years, uh, three more years, the pandemic-related expansion of premium subsidies for health insurance plans purchased under the Affordable Care Act. Our guest to discuss all this is Dr. Joshua Gordon, Director of Health Policy at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Josh uh, leads the CRFB's Health Savers Initiative, which uh, works to identify proposals to make healthcare more affordable. And I should note before joining CRFB, Josh Gordon spent 18 years as the policy director for an organization called the Concord Coalition. And speaking of, speaking of Concord Coalition policy directors, joining the conversation is the current policy director of the Concord <laughs> Coalition, Tori Gorman. Well, Josh, just to remind our listeners, uh, approximately how much of the federal budget currently goes to healthcare? Uh, so, I mean, the major federal healthcare programs are about 25% of the budget as a share of the economy. That's about 6% of GDP. Uh, and they're going to grow by about 1% of GDP over the next 10 years. And, and, precipitously higher after that, I take it, too. I mean, they keep uh, growing faster in the economy. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I think Medicare is very instructive on this. Uh, Medicare grows both because healthcare costs grow and because more people become eligible for it. So Medicare itself will go from about 4% of GDP to about 6% by 2040, and then about 8.5% by 2070. So a, a lot of growth, especially in the Medicare program. Which is why policymakers for years have been saying that we need to slow the growth of healthcare costs. And actually, to some extent, that's been done. I mean, that was this is our 30th anniversary year. And I was going back and looking at some of the things, the projections that were made, you know, 30 years ago or, or even more recently. Uh, and it, it had healthcare costs expected to be way higher. <laughs> Uh, than they are now. So even while healthcare costs are still considered to be a problem, at least if there's, if there's some bit of good news, is this the, they haven't grown as fast as uh, we were thinking that they would. Um, so in the most recently passed uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which is really more about Medicare and climate change and tax policy than it is about inflation reduction, but be that as it may, there were some substantial Medicare changes, and uh, some most, I guess, were designed to, to help control costs. So I wonder if you could go through some of the, you know, what were the major healthcare provisions in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act? Yeah, I mean, I think 
to start off, I think the big kind of ticket item here was prescription drug savings uh, that um, are evident in the next 10 years, which is, you know, the budget window as um, your podcast listeners surely know. Uh, but then after those 10 years, those savings are going to continue to grow um, and um, overall lower healthcare costs. Uh, most notably, Medicare will now have the power to negotiate um, a certain number of drugs, uh, basically to take a certain discount on those drugs over time, um, and that will grow over time. Uh, there is a cap on the inflation of drugs in Medicare Parts B and D, where drug prices will not be able to grow faster uh, than inflation, and if they do, the extra money is rebated back to the government. Um, and, and those are really kind of the big important items for the long term. There was also short-term savings from repealing um, what we call the rebate rule. Uh, this rule was put in place at the end of the Trump administration. It's never taken uh, into uh, effect, uh, but um, there are some savings credited to uh, the budget from uh, delaying the implementation of that rule. Uh, and then there were some redesigns of Medicare Part D that are pretty consequential for beneficiaries, uh, but did cost um, a, a little bit of money over the next 10 years. So that was kind of the prescription drug part of the package. And then, as you mentioned, they also extended Affordable Care Act subsidy expansion for the next three years. Overall, what is it expected? How is it expected to affect the federal budget? Yeah, so the expansion of the ACA and a couple of smaller um, items are going to cost about $75 billion over 10 years. And then the healthcare savings that I talked about would be about $245 billion um, over the next 10 years. Uh, I should note that we don't exactly know um, how much things are going to cost because there were some last minute changes made to the legislation um, before uh, it was passed in the Senate and the Congressional Budget Office hasn't released their score of, of those changes, um, although we do expect that in the next week or so, I think. We're waiting with bated breath to find out mm -hmm. uh, the degree to which those changes will make a difference for the federal budget. But um, as far as uh, your average American, there's not going to be much change beyond what I talked about. Sorry. Yeah. So Josh wanted to dive in a little bit uh, on some of the details on the prescri prescription drug changes that were in this bill. Um, as you noted earlier, uh, one of the benefits in the Inflation Reduction Act allows M Medicare to negotiate prices for certain drugs that are covered by Medicare. Should senior citizens who are on Medicare right now expect to see a change in their out-of-pocket expenses on prescription drugs this year? This year, no. Uh, but in the next few years, there are going to be some major changes that Medicare Part D redesign I talked about uh, mm -hmm. is going to be much more consequential over the short to medium term for seniors than mm -hmm. the Medicare drug price negotiation. Uh, mm -hmm. That's because for the first time, uh, there's going to be a cap of out-of-pocket expenses uh, for seniors in Medicare Part D. Um, this might surprise people who aren't on Medicare um, because normally we think of insurance as, you know, the first thing insurance should do is prevent these huge catastrophic expenses. Uh, but there are still parts of Medicare that don't have a cap on that. Part D was one of those. And so this legislation is going to cap um, out-of-pocket expenses every year on prescription drugs, which 
uh, will be a, a very big benefit to those people in any given year that have to spend a lot of money on their prescription drugs. Then over time, the negotiation, which will lower the price of drugs, um, the highest price drugs uh, will be targeted first. Uh, that will begin to have a, a pretty big impact as well. This is a big deal in, in you know, the, the provision that allows Medicare to negotiate certain prescription drug prices. I mean, that, that, that's a huge game changer in the world of healthcare. I mean, it's something that, that's been discussed and debated for a really, really, really long time. And of course, every time the government's tried to do this in the past, the prescription drug industry, pharma, big pharma, comes out with these ads saying, oh, it's going to hurt uh, the development of new drugs to fight things like Alzheimer's and stuff. They scare people, but you can't deny that, you know, when you squeeze on a, on a balloon, for example, it's going to pop out elsewhere. So what do you see as sort of the, the, the second order ramifications of this new prescription drug policy in Medicare? Over maybe even the next 20 years, um, there aren't going to be very dramatic changes in the business model of pharmaceutical companies because it takes a, a pretty long while for the policy uh, to ramp up. And then even when the policy is in full effect and Medicare is regularly negotiating um, an additional 15 or 20 drugs a year, um, that, that negotiation only takes place after drugs have been on the market for what we would normally consider the kind of patent exclusivity period. Mm -hmm. And then the drug price can get ratcheted down. And those discounts happen um, in kind of a standard way from 13 to 15 years, you get you know, a 20% discount. Beyond 15 years, you get a, a slightly larger discount. So um, I think it, it might actually bring more kind of stability to drug pricing uh, and I think pharmaceutical companies who aren't going to want to leave the business because it's a profitable business mm -hmm. are going to figure out ways uh, in their product development to still um, make um, profit. Uh, will it be the Wild West uh, as it is now? No, but um, we have to look at both sides of the coin when we think about drug development. Um, drugs are no good for uh, Americans if they can't afford them or if the government has to stop paying for them. So what we've done is given seniors this prescription drug benefit. Uh, we've now made the prescription drug benefit more generous. So there are more purchasers for these drugs. And yet we never bothered to deal with prices on the other end to make it a better bargain for the federal government. And I think that's what we've done here. I think they've struck a good balance. The Congressional Budget Office does not think this will impact new drugs. Um, I, I think they said something like, 10 less new drugs out of 1,300 over the next um, 20 years, uh, that is not a, a dramatic change. I also think if it turns out that this um, destroys drug research and the drug market in the United States, politicians will have no problem um, giving uh, money back to pharma um, to, to kind of stimulate um, the, the research and development again. Mm -hmm. um, and they can so finagle that through the worried. tax code, right? Sure. Yeah, they, yeah. they, you know, what they, what, yeah, there are other ways of, of dealing with. Do you see any kind of leakage into the private sector market for prescription drugs? So, you know, you and I, we're, we're not on Medicare. Um, we buy our prescription drugs through our health insurance plans. Um, do you think that there's going to be any kind of impact of this proposal on, you know, the, the prices that you and I pay for our prescription drugs in the private market? 
So this is a really interesting question that I think I would answer in two parts. The first part is that the inflation um, control that I talked about where um, drug prices can't grow faster than inflation, originally that was designed to impact um, the commercial market and Medicare right. um, Part D, uh, but that was uh, taken out at the last minute because of the parliamentary rules about uh, budget um, legislation. And so now the inflation caps are only uh, for Medicare, not for the commercial market. Um, there is some thought that those inflation caps in the Medicare market will still hold down price increases in the commercial market. Uh, but again, we won't know until we see it. And also the Congressional Budget Office, I think, will tell us what they think um, when they come out with their new estimate. And so uh, that is what us healthcare policy researchers researchers are really uh, waiting to see how much they think the Medicare-only inflation cap will hold price increases down in the commercial market. Then the other question is, will the negotiation um, in Medicare cause those prices to fall for those drugs and then be made up by greater prices in the commercial market? And most healthcare researchers do not think that will happen because right now the Medicare market is separate from the commercial market. In the commercial market, drug companies already price things in order to maximize their profits. And so there isn't much reason to think that if they get lower uh, revenues through Medicare, they're gonna somehow be able to charge even higher prices in the commercial market than they already do when they already have very little constraint on that pricing um, in the commercial market. And most health evidence is that uh, such things, uh, we call that cost shifting, that that doesn't actually happen, uh, certainly not in the United States healthcare market. So I am not very worried about that, um, that, that our prices are somehow gonna be even higher than they are now because they are very high now and they're as high as the drug companies can make them uh, to make the profits that they wanna make. Let me... Uh... Well, if you're not worried about that, let me give you something else to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, possibly. Um, you were here uh, at the Concord Coalition when the Affordable Care Act was passed. And I remember you and I were very, um, uh, I, I guess one of the things that we worried about was uh, expanding costs. And the people at the White House and proponents were arguing that there's going to be a great cost saver called the Cadillac tax. That there was going to be a tax on very generous um, uh, healthcare programs, and that was not only going to uh, healthcare insurance programs. That was not only going to raise revenue, but it was going to have an effect on disincentivizing um, overly generous healthcare plans. And uh, that that made some sense, and so that was supposed to be a great cost saver. When it was enacted, the, the, the date was of implementation for the so-called Cadillac tax was put off for several years. And every time you got close to it, Congress would push off the date of implementation because it really wasn't a very popular provision. And, and unions hated the idea. And then um, uh, eventually the Cadillac tax was repealed. So it never went into effect. So those incentive savings and revenue savings that we were counting on to help fund the ACA never came into effect. So I look at that and I, I look at the implementation of the drug uh, negotiation provision that we were just talking about. It, it doesn't take effect, I guess, until 2026. Um, 
there are going to be a couple of elections between now and then. It, yeah. Are you at all worried that we're going to face a similar situation where, like the Cadillac tax, this never takes effect? Um, I mean, I'm always worried uh, about such things, especially after that experience. And and um, but the 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 one reason here I'm optimistic is that restraining prescription drug prices is about as popular an issue there is among the American public, among Republicans, among Democrats, among independents. Um, and uh, the way it's phased in is the first set of 10 drugs, I think is gonna be identified in 2024. And then there's this negotiation that takes place before uh, those prices um, come into effect in 2026. And um, so, you're going to know pretty soon what those 10 drugs are. My suspicion is they're going to be very high priced and very popular drugs. Uh, and uh, it would require members of Congress to then vote to somehow postpone those price savings that uh, a lot of Americans are going to count on. And it is going to be a very tough vote. So um, am I worried that the overall process could be watered down over time? Uh, I am. Uh, but I, I'm not as worried that there's going to be just a pure delay of any negotiation of any process. Now, there might be court cases that come into um, uh, the picture that have kind of a different way of delaying. Uh, but I, I do find it hard to believe that um, politicians are going to take such an unpopular stance, uh, certainly over the short term, to limit some of these price negotiations. And um, just to uh, finish up here on this segment, uh, and you've alluded to this, but just to be to, to put a fine point on it, it it's not all drugs that uh, get negotiated. There are certain categories. And could you describe what the what, what are the drugs that are eligible for negotiation? Yeah, I'll uh, ascribe, uh, describe it generally, but then your listeners should know that there are a lot more specifics involved here, I think. Yeah, yeah, uh, don't, yeah, yeah. it doesn't matter if you turn into the weeds, they turn off the shows. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the most important thing to know is that you're going to take uh, 10 drugs out of the 50 most expensive uh, drugs in Medicare Part D for the first round of negotiations. And then the next year after that, it will be an additional 15 drugs. And then after that, Part B drugs will be included along with Part D drugs as being eligible uh, for this negotiation. Those drugs have to have been on the market for, you know, in some cases, 13 years, in some cases, 15 years. So, um, you know, I, I think, uh, again, it, it kicks off pretty slowly, uh, but it'll kick off uh, targeting some of the most expensive drugs. And I think like everything um, in healthcare, there are a few um, very expensive things that cost a lot of money. And if you tackle like those top 10 or 15 things, you actually go a long way towards bringing the curve of overall healthcare costs down. Uh, mm -hmm. Because there are some drugs that are blockbuster drugs that are used by everyone that are very expensive. And if you bring just those down, you can have huge kind of budgetary and out-of-pocket results uh, by just targeting those outliers. And so I expect that's what's going to happen. And that's also why I don't think the overall pharmaceutical market is going to be hugely um, restructured around um, these negotiations. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. 
Tori Gorman and I are talking with Josh Gordon, Director of Health Policy at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. We're discussing the health care provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Josh Gordon, Director of Health Policy for the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, and we're discussing the health care provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act. Josh, one of the things that they did was extend for three years a provision that enhanced some of the subsidies and made them more generous and made it apply to more people. Some of the premium subsidies for people who purchase insurance on the Affordable Care Act, uh, that was done because we were in a pandemic and it was clearly was uh, advantageous to expand uh, health care coverage for yeah, when, when you when people. you're in the middle of a, of, a, of a global health pandemic, it's pretty helpful to have people access to health care and health insurance. So they did that. And then in, in this latest act, they extended those provisions for three years. So should they throw in the towel and say these provisions should be made permanent? Because the other way of looking at it is if you do it for three years, You've got a score for three years, but if you made it permanent, it's a heck of a lot more expensive. And so is it a scoring gimmick to just phase it out after three years? What's your thought about the extension of these provisions and their future? So the first thing I can do is talk about the score, that the three-year extension of those enhanced subsidies uh, cost about $65 billion um, for those three years, and it would cost about $170 billion in addition to that, to have it extended um, throughout the 10-year budget window. So they saved $170 billion in this bill by not extending it the whole way. Mm -hmm. Um, Extending it for three years uh, sets up this very interesting um, 2025 where uh, a bunch of tax cuts from the Trump administration are going to expire. You have these ACA subsidies that are going to expire. And that could either be um, the start of another huge deficit increasing um, piece of legislation where everyone gets what they they want, or uh, maybe some choices can be made at that time to um, reduce the deficit and extend the things that make sense and don't extend the things that don't make sense. And as uh, your listeners and, of course, the Conquer Coalition knows, it almost never works out that way, uh, and we wind up just increasing the deficit dramatically over the long term, but let's hope that that doesn't happen. But back to the uh, Affordable Care Act subsidies, uh, I I think you're right that during the pandemic, the enhanced subsidies made some sense. In addition, um, states uh, had Medicaid rules where they weren't allowed to kick people off the Medicaid rules, uh, and and they're still not allowed to from the last two years. So you've had actually a huge increase uh, and the number of people with insurance um, during the last two and a half years or so uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. And I think uh, that that did make sense uh, for being in the pandemic and uh, having people uh, with health insurance makes sense for society overall over the long term. Uh, I think it's just a question of how much are we uh, going to expect uh, which people um, to pay uh, for that health insurance. So just for perspective, In 2021, about 5 million additional people 
joined the Affordable Care Act exchanges to purchase health insurance. Um, and you've had uh, a pretty big increase in the number uh, of people on Medicaid as well. Uh, so um, right now, people without insurance is at the lowest level, um, I think, in history, although uh, that'll be confirmed after the next official data from Gallup and, and from uh, the CMS actuaries. Uh, but right now, the uninsured level uh, is about is below 9%, mm-hmm. uh, which is um, really good historically for, for the country. So when this three-year extension is over, there are going to be a whole bunch of people who have been getting their health care, their health insurance, access to the health insurance through the Affordable Care Act exchanges for five years. So the five years they will have had access to health insurance. Does it make sense to make these permanent? Well, again, if I put my politician hat on, uh, it certainly is not good uh, when you're the president or in the majority party of Congress, and all of a sudden, um, 5 million people lose their health insurance or have to have huge spikes in the amount that they have to pay for health insurance. That's pretty unpopular. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, as with all things, it's, it's about trade-offs. If we want to uh, make these uh, provisions permanent and we want to prevent that premium spike, uh, we should be willing to pay for it by mm-hmm. uh, reducing costs el- elsewhere and um, I spend a lot of time uh, as uh, the director of health policy of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, thinking of ways to reduce the cost of healthcare. And there are plenty of things we could do to offset you, the cost of this expansion. You got some ideas you want to share? <laughs> I have a lot of ideas. Uh, maybe in the next segment, I'll talk <laughs> you through Medicare Advantage uh, because uh, we could save a lot of money in Medicare Advantage. And I, I can talk about that in, in a little bit. But there are other um, kind of littler things we can do, especially uh, for the Affordable Care Act. Uh, I, I don't want to get into the details, but there are things we do uh, with cost sharing reductions uh, that have kind of developed over time that make um, Affordable Care Act expansion more expensive. And we could reverse those, still cover people uh, and, and um, not have the premium spikes uh, that we're seeing. Uh, but I, I mean, this is one of those things that if you want to insure more people uh, and that insurance is costly, we just need to find ways to pay for it. So um, I think extending it uh, makes sense from a political point of view and from a human point of view. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think doing that on the backs of the deficit does not make sense, especially when we know so many places in, in healthcare where we could be reducing costs. One of the reasons they extended the Affordable Care Act subsidies is because we're still operating under a public health emergency here in the United States related to COVID. You know, when COVID hit, President Trump declared a, a public health emergency. And there are other features that are affected by that declaration. And I was just reading an article just before we hopped on the show that HHS announced in early August that they were going to extend that public health emergency again. By doing so, it affects a whole bunch of other things, things like expanded Medicaid coverage, um, Medicare telehealth services for seniors so they don't have to leave their homes to go see a doctor. There are higher payments to hospitals to cover all the extra costs associated with fighting COVID, et cetera. Do you have a, a good idea, a good sense of what the, the cost of extending this public health emergency is? And do you have some thoughts about how long we should consider keeping this public health emergency in place? In general, I think the public health emergency probably should have been ended already, uh, but I understand why it wasn't. I think the main thing 
keeping the Biden administration from renewing it is to avoid a huge change in Medicaid enrollment. Uh, these are the lowest income individuals um, throughout all the different states. And right now uh, they are maintaining their ability to get Medicaid because the public health emergency made it um, impossible or, or told states that they could not redetermine eligibility for Medicaid, even if people had income increases over the last two years, that would now not make them eligible. So that, that's the most dramatic change that's going to happen when the public health emergency ends. I think it will probably end in January. Um, that doesn't mean that um, the president will be declaring COVID over or that no one will get vaccines or anything like that. It just means that uh, the amount of money the federal government is spending to keep this public health emergency going makes no sense in the current environment. For instance, we are still increasing payments to states uh, for Medicaid. Uh, and most state budgets are um, have huge surpluses right now because of all of this federal money that's being sent to states. That is translating actually into higher inflation in the economy. And we know we're trying to uh, reduce inflation. So the first thing we need to do is cut off those subsidies for states. The next thing we do is to make sure there's an orderly transition as Medicaid redetermination happens, about 50% of those people will be eligible for healthcare, either in Medicaid or in another program. And the states need to work hard to make sure that we're not just dramatically cutting people off of health insurance. They're gonna have time to do that. Uh, I think the Department of Health and Human Services has produced guidelines, but you know, state governments operate in their own way. Some of them have technical capacity to do these things smoothly others don't. So it's really going to be kind of a hairy process, uh, which is never good when you're um, making, trying to make sure the lowest income with the greatest need uh, get their health insurance. Mm -hmm. So uh, that, that's one thing to keep an eye on. And, and then the kind of one of my pet things to keep an eye on is the telehealth mm -hmm. um, authorities that you mentioned. And um, uh, we are very concerned about the unfettered use of telehealth over the long term, increasing healthcare costs and increasing healthcare utilization. And this is like kind of a one-time shot, I think, for Congress to set up some guard rules uh, about how telehealth expansion should proceed uh, over the long term when this public health emergency ends. Uh, and uh, right now you have different um, interest groups on the Hill trying to convince members of Congress to just allow telehealth for everything, have no guardrails uh, as we did during the public health emergency. And, and I think that would be a missed opportunity because as we know in healthcare, once one of these things gets started and people have the benefit, it's very difficult to mm -hmm. put rules uh, and take some of those benefits away over the long term. So I look at this as kind of like a one-time thing. We need to do it right uh, at the first moment we can or else, um, the, the battle will be lost over the long term. Uh, so that's something we're working uh, with members of Congress on quite a bit to, to try and um, at least have some way uh, to constrain the growth of telehealth properly uh, so that there's not waste, fraud, and abuse, so that there's not overutilization, and so that we don't have misaligned payment incentives. Um, and those are the things we're working on. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Dr. Joshua Gordon, Director of Health Policy at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. We're discussing the health care provisions 
of the Inflation Reduction Act, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and I are talking with former Concord Coalition Policy Director Josh Gordon, who's now Director of Health Policy at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. And we're discussing the health care provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act. This section, we're going to switch over to a slightly different topic. Josh, the uh, CRFB has put out a, a recent letter regarding forms to Medicare Advantage. First, let's uh, explain what is Medicare Advantage and how is it funded? So Medicare Advantage is a part of Medicare where beneficiaries have a choice of private insurance plans. These insurance plans get paid by Medicare to cover uh, beneficiaries. About half of all Medicare beneficiaries are now enrolled in these private insurance plans. So um, we uh, pay for Medicare Advantage through uh, Medicare Part B premiums and uh, the Medicare Part A Hospital Insurance Trust Fund, which uh, as I'm sure you know, is approaching insolvency uh, in the next six years. So that's one of the reasons why we're so focused on Medicare Advantage reform, uh, because um, doing so can extend solvency, can reduce Medicare costs over the long term, both for the federal government and for beneficiaries who pay higher premiums than they should have to pay uh, because these Medicare Advantage insurance plans are actually overpaid uh, by the government to cover Medicare beneficiaries. Yeah, one of the interesting things is, um, you know, when Medicare Advantage was introduced uh, a couple of decades ago, the idea was to have a program almost as an experimental thing that would have competition, would um, you know, have healthcare plans competing for a, a basket of services for a set fee. And that was supposed to help drive down the cost of healthcare and, you know, establish that, that, that it, it can be done and be more cost efficient than traditional fee for service. So how is it ending up that Medicare Advantage is <laughs> being much more expensive <laughs> fee for service? Yeah, this is one of those, um, really uh, crazy things. And, and I think the thing that makes me crazy about it is that we actually did find out that these private plans can save money through efficiency and network management and all of the things that commercial insurance plans do, that they can actually treat Medicare beneficiaries more uh, cheaply than traditional fee-for-service Medicare. Uh, but over time, uh, the government has overpaid these plans to where they're now making a profit and gaining members, not through those efficiencies, uh, but through these overpayments. And that means over time, the competition has become kind of an unfair competition between uh, private insurance plans that are now paid more uh, per beneficiary uh, than uh, it would cost to treat them in traditional fee-for-service Medicare. Uh, and in fact, we have never saved money from having managed care uh, in Medicare uh, because of these overpayments. And I think that's something that is maybe surprising to the American public. Uh, it's definitely surprising to members of Congress who thought we were setting up this competition uh, to become um, to, to, to make Medicare more cost efficient. Uh, and we haven't done that. So uh, 
I can go into the reasons why we're overpaying them or what some of the culprits are. Yeah, I uh, think that that the, would be. So, yeah, <laughs> I the mean, the overall it, problem is 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 really um, uh, very uh, basic and problematic uh, going forward. I mean, is the problem just one of Medicare Advantage plans learning how to game the system to get higher payments? Yeah, I think they have uh, gamed the system. Um, they've gamed the system not because they're necessarily bad actors, but because the incentives all point Medicare Advantage plans to gaming the system. So uh, here's how it works. Uh, We set up a program where we don't want Medicare Advantage private insurance plans to pick all of the healthy individuals in the Medicare population and leave the sick uh, to traditional fee-for-service Medicare because that would increase costs in traditional fee-for-service Medicare. So we set up a system of risk adjustment, which all good insurance systems have. Um, The only difference is, uh, unlike risk adjustment in the Affordable Care Act or in Medicaid or among different payment models in fee-for-service, in Medicare Advantage, that risk adjustment is not budget neutral, which means you can get more money by treating sicker patients, but you don't lose money by treating healthier patients. Uh, So it's additive. And these insurance companies have figured out a way to game the risk adjustment system to make more money where it looks like they're treating sicker patients than fee-for-service Medicare. Uh, But all of our available data is that Medicare Advantage uh, beneficiaries are not sicker than fee-for-service Medicare. And there's even some evidence that they might be a little bit healthier, but we're paying those plans as if they're sicker, um, which is kind of the underlying problem behind the overpayments. There's also one other way we're overpaying these Medicare Advantage plans, and that is we decided to do quality bonus payments to Medicare Advantage plans that had high ratings on a one to five star system because we want uh, CMS to reward insurance plans that do a better job uh, with these extra payments. And we also wanna have some measure where beneficiaries can look up whether the plan they're buying is highly rated or not. The problem is Medicare has graded on a curve and now 90% of all plans are either four or five star plans and getting these quality bonuses. And if everyone is excellent four to five stars, then no one is excellent four to five stars and beneficiaries don't get good information about what a good insurance plan is uh, over a bad insurance plan. And yet we're still funneling uh, lots of money extra money in the Medicare Advantage to reward these quality bonuses, which are basically at this point meaningless. Another place where you would want to see budget neutrality, where the poor plans got less, the good plans got more, but that it was all budget neutral and balanced out. Instead, again, we're throwing money on top of money and overpaying uh, the insurance plans. Sorry. I was thinking back to my experience when I was working on Capitol Hill and working for a member from Arizona, and we were trying to stabilize Medicare Advantage uh, in in Tucson, Arizona. You know, this might not necessarily be the issue today, but it was definitely an issue back then, um, especially since you had way more people in fee-for-service Medicare than you did in Medicare Advantage. As these health insurers are trying to create these networks in in certain rural areas, you know, it, it gets it, it gets hard to find doctors, especially if they don't like the reimbursement rates. So what would happen is we'd have these doctors that would leave 
you know, in groups, because, you know, a lot of them are organized into groups. And so an entire hospital network of, of physicians would leave a health plan and you'd leave a, a Medicare Advantage plan without any physicians, any doctors in the, in the network. And so the health insurers would then go to the federal government and say, we need larger reimbursements because we need to pay our doctors. They're not going to be in the network if we can't pay them more. So I don't know if that's still an issue today, maybe not so much when you've got you know, the, the membership pretty much evenly split between fee for service and Medicare advantage, but it was certainly an issue several years ago. Listen, this might shock your listeners, but uh, I think most legislation starts out with good intentions. Uh, mm-hmm. And most members of Congress are not uh, just trying to screw the country or screw beneficiaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is one of those cases where when Medicare advantage was started, all of the payment incentives and formulas assumed Medicare Advantage would stay a relatively small part of the overall Medicare program. Mm-hmm. And then what we also know is that Congress is very bad at managing these things over time, especially when an interest group starts getting paid more than maybe they should have. It is much harder over time to reduce benefits than it is to just keep increasing them. So that's what happened here. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. The quality bonuses were designed to increase quality. The um, risk adjustment was designed to balance out the healthy and the sick. Uh, But if we we don't manage that over time, we run into problems. And that's why we sent this letter to CMS, uh, because CMS actually does regularly review payment rates to Medicare Advantage. They actually have the authority to correct some of these risk adjustment problems Uh, They just haven't been using that, I think, because they're afraid of the political blowback of them unilaterally reducing payments to these Medicare Advantage plans. Um, uh, There is a letter that gets signed every year by members of Congress warning CMS to not um, reduce Medicare Advantage benefits. The last time that letter went through uh, Congress, it had something like 380 signatures, nearly the entire membership. Of, that, of the House of Representatives. So that is a pretty strong signal to CMS to not uh, get ahead of their skis mm-hmm. on, uh, on major changes to this program. And so that's why we um, do as much education as we can on the Hill to let members of Congress know this is something that they need to step in and make clear either through legislation or through um, discussion with CMS that they need to start adjusting for um, some of these overpayments. And the, the numbers we're talking about are very large. We estimate that fully adjusting and correcting the risk adjustment system would save about 300 to $400 billion over 10 years wow. uh, for the Medicare program and an additional $100 billion for Medicare beneficiaries in the form of lower uh, Part, D, Part B premiums. So and that's, they had and that's- to- and that's enough money, you know, going back to making the Affordable Care Act subsidies permanent, that's more than enough money to offset the cost of that. We were talking about different healthcare savings that you could implement elsewhere. Bingo, here you are. Exactly. That's a microcosm of how policymaking affects the budget deficit. I mean, <laughs> maybe well-intentioned, but then you have to try to balance things out. And it's always the, the balancing part of it that uh, the, the giving the goodies is the easy part. I, I am particularly struck by these quality bonuses, which is just like morphed into everybody gets a quality bonus, which is really absurd. I mean, it takes away the whole point. And it's just like 
funny money. Mm -hmm. I mean, why is, how does that happen? (laughs) Everybody gets a quality bonus. Well, I I mean, listen, again, there are some honest ways it happens and some dishonest ways. The honest way it happens is that we still don't know how to measure healthcare quality. Uh, And we make up a bunch of metrics that we think can measure that, can measure insurance quality, can measure healthcare quality, uh, but we never quite figure out how to do it. And we create measurements that the people being measured can then sort of uh, make themselves fit into. It's like teaching to the test uh, in mm-hmm. education, right? That's a good uh, so, uh, but if it's budget neutral, you don't have to worry so much about that. Uh, but because it's additive, uh, that's where it becomes a real um, federal budget challenge, I think. Well, Josh, that's all the time that we have for this week. Thank you for taking us on this tour of the healthcare provisions of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act and on uh, reform options that are needed for Medicare Advantage. Uh, This is your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I have been talking with Josh Gordon about these uh, healthcare matters, and we'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. 